The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. On Sunday morning, December 7, 2008, the sermon began this way. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. And the next statement was, today we begin a study of a book that many scholars and theologians believe to be the most important book of the Bible. That was the beginning of our series seven years ago, and today on Sunday morning, November the 1st, 2015, we've come to the final message in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the 285th Sunday morning of this study. Now, it's fitting that we should end this series on the good news of the gospel. These are the last words that the Holy Spirit had Matthew pen. And so we read here uh, the triumphant note of Christ's redemption, of how Jesus came into the world to save sinners and the means by which that redemption is accomplished. Now, in that first message those years ago, my first scripture reference was from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 which says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. In these last days, and that, of course, is the time in which we live now, God has spoken to us through his Son, and thus began the journey that we've taken in the study of Christ's life. And our next study will begin with those two verses in Hebrews where we will continue to speak of God's Son, and we'll see how the author of Hebrews magnifies him and makes the claim that he is abundantly superior to all things that are in heaven and in earth. Jesus is the expressed image of the living God. He is the one who is the heir of all things. He upholds the world by the word of his power. He's the one who died for our sins, who arose from the dead for our justification. And he is the one who is living and sits at the right hand of the Father and the majesty on high. Now, interestingly, Matthew ends with the message that Hebrews begins that Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth, and so therefore he demands to be worshipped and to be magnified, and so we are to go into all nations and to preach the gospel and tell them that God loves sinners and that God will save sinners and take them to heaven. I, I, I think the conclusion of our long study deserves a celebration. Some of you are really probably thinking about celebrating. We are going to celebrate, but not with a party. We're going to celebrate by doing exactly what Jesus has told us to do, and that is we will preach the gospel, we will make disciples, we will baptize them, and we will teach them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. And so now comes the final message. This is part number two of the sermon that I began last week. It is the declaration of the gospel of Christ that is found in the commission. It is the great commission. It's the last order that Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Our instructions are to preach the gospel. And that is the way that Mark put it in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, as he quoted Jesus. And he said unto them, Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And our concern in these messages is what is the gospel that we are to preach? Why do people need to hear this? What is it that they need to hear? What is the story here in the wonderful gospel of salvation? Well, today I want to focus on this aspect. Last week it was mostly on what is the gospel. And today we're going to focus on the sinner's response to it. What the sinner must do in order to be saved. 
But before we go there, I need to remind you of the previous discussion, just to run very quickly over the points that we covered in the last message. And we begin here with the sinful condition of man. And that's the place that all gospel presentations must begin. We must make people aware that they are sinners. They must know that they have broken God's law. And sin is the transgression of the law. In our justice system, lawbreakers are are punished and We would never expect that a good judge would let those who break the law go free without punishment. In fact, we're angry when we hear of judges that are too lenient about very serious crime. We expect that justice will be done. We know that good society and good order in society is dependent upon the swift action of justice. But somehow we don't see it that way when it comes to the sins that we have committed against God, how we have transgressed God's law. We don't really look at this, that we deserve punishment for what we've done. God considers that breaking His law is extremely serious. As the supreme righteous judge, He's always going to do what's right. In the book of Exodus, when God's law was codified in the Ten Commandments, the promise was made that God will never clear the guilty. He said that he would execute judgment to the full extent of the penalty of the law. And this is very serious because God's punishment is exactly the same for every transgression, and that is eternal punishment in the fires of hell. And that is a relentless punishment, and that is a punishment that has gone beyond any further acts or hopes of redemption or of forgiveness. Now, if someone asks the question, what do we need to be saved from? Here's the answer to that question. We must be saved from the wrath of an angry God, a God who says that he's going to punish the wicked. He will bring vengeful judgment on all who break his law. Now, I know that most people don't want to think that God could be angry. They think of God as being tolerant, of God as being sweet and kind, that God would never hurt anyone, that God would never inflict any kind of punishment. But I remind you that the Bible does teach that Jesus is God, that he's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of wrath that we saw in the Old Testament. He's the same God in the Old as he is in the New. And the Bible says that all judgment has been committed to the Son. And the Bible also says that God is angry at the wicked every day. And here is the truth for all of us. We are all sinners. We have all broken God's law. We have all come short of the glory of God. And all of us are under the penalty of God's wrath. Now, last week we proved the depravity of man. And so I'll refer you to that message for further discussion. So we see then what we need to be saved from, that salvation is from the punishment of hell, and that is the just desert for the sins that we have committed against God, the just deserts of our sinful condition. Well, next, we looked at the righteous expectation of God. Now, the important question that we would ask now is, is there really anyone who who could escape or should escape the penalty of God's wrath? And we ask that question because we would all admit that we know some good people. I have met people that have high ethical standards, I've met some that are philanthropists. I've met some that will act selflessly. I know there are people that want to help the poor. I know there are those that are against social injustice and they'll fight against it and they're compassionate about the terrible hardships that others go through. Back in September, uh, we, we heard many stories of compassion in that great tragedy of the Valley Fire in Lake County or thousands of people that were displaced from their homes. And we heard stories about firefighters and volunteer workers that that helped to save the, the homes of many people that were burning down, even while their own homes were burning. There was a groundswell of support, and there was so much given that it was asked that people stop bringing things because there was just too much, and they couldn't use it all. The pastor of the uh, Middletown Bible Church said that they had so many offers of help and so many offers of housing that they couldn't use anymore. And so he just said, you've got to stop now. We've got too much. And so we would ask, are are those kinds of people, people who are compassionate, people who want to help, people who will give to others, are those people that are also deserving of hell? And we think, well, that's a a tremendously hard question to answer. 
And yet we go to the Scriptures and we learn that in Jesus' time, the same kind of people lived. There were very strict religious people then. There were people that prayed. There were people that gave to the poor. There were people that tried to live holy and righteous lives. In one example, Jesus told the story of a man who was virtuous and a man who had a list of all the good deeds that he did. And so he prayed in, in somewhat, uh, some degree of honesty at least. He said, I'm not an unjust person. He said, I'm not a traitor. I'm not a liar. I'm not a thief. I give my tithes. I fast and pray. And there are none of us who would think, I suppose, that a person like that would be deserving of hell. In another example, Jesus talked to a man who said, I have kept all of the commandments. He said, I, I don't cheat on my wife. I never hate. I never steal. I never lie. And he said, I'm always, I've always honored my father and my mother. And we would look at that and we would say, well, there's another good person who doesn't deserve hell. Here is a man who's a good family man. He's, a, he's an honest businessman. He is a, a religious man. He's a good member of society. Is that person bad enough to go to hell? And many of us would agree that not those types of people, at least, should not be subjects of God's wrath. And we say that, and we might believe that, but it's not our opinion that counts. There's only one opinion that counts, and that is the opinion of the Almighty God. And what God is never going to do, He's never going to lower His expectations to our standard. God has His own expectation, and His expectation is not that just people, that people just try to be good, but His expectation is absolute perfection, that there would be no transgressions, no mistakes, not even what we consider to be the very smallest of infractions. And do you understand why that's true? And why it must be true? It's because God himself is holy. It's because God lives in perfection. God lives in a place where there's nothing that defiles, where there are no imperfections that are allowed. God lives in a place where there is no sin, and he cannot let anyone into that place that would spoil the perfect atmosphere of what God is and what God expects for his place. So God has a righteous expectation that everyone must be perfect as he is perfect. And unless you want to live in a heaven that's no different from the earth, and unless you want to live in a place where there is no perfect peace, where there is not complete happiness, unless you want to live in a place where there are still sinners, where there's still crime, where there's still hatred, where there's still hardship, where there are fires, where there are disasters, where there is hunger, unless you want to live in a place like that, then you be thankful for this, that God will let no sin there. God is not going to let anyone into heaven who has sin upon him, who is not perfectly perfect. Heaven without that is not heaven. And so I think that you can see that it's true. There isn't anyone who deserves heaven. There's not a one of us that's perfect. There's not one, one who deserves heaven. And so there's not going to be anyone there who is not there without the divine help of God himself. Thirdly, that led us to the sacrificial substitution of Christ. None of us are perfect. All of us have broken God's laws. Our condition is that we are sinful, that we are lawbreakers. None of us have met God's standard of righteousness. And so we are under the penalty of God's wrath. And we have no way to escape the guilt of our sin by anything that we do. But we don't need to despair about that. Because this is really the beginning of the good news. There is a way that we can be released from our guilt. There is a way that we can be declared perfectly just in the eyes of a righteous judge. God has provided a way for man to be justified. In his mercy and his grace, he allowed someone who is perfect to stand in our place. The good news is that there is someone who will take the punishment of our sins for us, that he is the perfect man and he is perfect God. He is Jesus Christ. And the good news is that he came to this earth to help those who could not help themselves. And so we don't need to be angry because of God's unfailing justice. We don't need to complain that somehow that God is unfair to us and that we are going to receive uh, 
not going to receive the just reward of the sin, our sinful lives. So we just need to be thankful for this, that God is gracious, that, that God is loving and He's merciful, He's kind in allowing us to escape the penalty of our sins by requiring nothing from us at all. He doesn't say you have to do anything. God Himself said, I will take this upon Myself. I will make you righteous. There's nothing that you can do. I will make you righteous. And so God, in His mercy and His grace, gave us Jesus Christ. That is the greatest act of love and mercy that could ever be displayed. God sent His own Son, His perfect Son, into the world. And His Son came, and He never showed anything but kindness and compassion for those that He came to save. And so He gave Himself as a sacrifice to die as a substitute for our sins. He became sin for us. That's the way the Scripture describes it. He became sin for us. He went to the cross with our sins upon Him to stand the judgment of God. And there on the cross, He suffered and died to reconcile unworthy sinners to Him and to God. God is filled with wrath because of sin. And Jesus appeased God's wrath and God's justice by taking the penalty on Him so that we don't have to die and go to hell. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what a sinner must hear. It's the one and the only way that we can be reconciled to God. As that song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that is good news. That's really the best news that you'll ever hear. And we're not talking about something that's good for you for tomorrow, good for today or good for tomorrow or good for next week or next year. We're talking about something that lasts for all of eternity. This is good news for you because this secures a place for you in heaven for all of eternity in the, in the goodness and the graciousness and the happiness of that place that's called heaven. See, no one, can, no one can pass on this offer of eternal life that God gives in heaven when the terrible alternative that you face is death and damnation in the fires of hell. Well, that brings me to the next part of the message. What must you do with the gospel? That's the good news. That's what it contains, what Christ did in substituting for us and dying for our sins, what God has done for us. That's the good news. That is the gospel. But what are we to do with that message once that we've heard it? This is the very thing that you need to hear. Now, I want you to think today, even if you have said that you are a Christian, even if you say, I have believed in Jesus Christ, I want you to continue to ask yourself in the message today, do I really know it? Do I really understand it? Have I actually believed? And so the message I have for you today is for everyone in the room, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, think about this. Have I really received the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, fourthly, I'd like to talk to you this morning about the joyful reception of salvation. The joyful reception of it. What do we do about this gospel? Well, there are two very important Bible doctrines that we need to talk about. These are critical when we discuss the gospel with lost sinners. There are two requirements that have to be met for our salvation, and these are inseparable, and so we call them inseparable graces of God. And if you're taking notes, you might note that, that they are graces of God, that these things are granted by God. This is not something that arises from within the human heart. We have no capability of this at all. This has to be given by the Almighty God. They are gifts that are granted by God. And there is no one who comes to salvation without these. No one who has not been called and enabled by God's Holy Spirit can do these. And every soul winner has to take that deep into his heart and realize that people are not saved because we are skillful soul winners. And people are not saved because we have uncanny powers of persuasion to make people believe the gospel. Now, there's only one way that a person can come to Christ, and that is by a work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, and God is the only one who has the power to do it. In the 19th century, there was a man named Charles Finney who preached a sermon entitled, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. And he said that every person possesses within him the power to make a decision that will release him from the bondage of his sins. And that message became the mantra of modern evangelism. But I'll tell you right now, we do not take that approach. 
We take the Bible's approach to this, and we believe exactly what the Bible says, that there is no one who has the power to change the sinner's heart but God. And that's why you need to be grateful for the grace of God, because God is at work in the gospel of Christ, causing you to do what you should do before you even realize that you need to do it. That's God working in the heart. He works imperceptibly. Now let me explain that to you for just a moment. Sinners are not aware of what God does secretly in the heart. When someone comes and preaches the gospel to you, the gospel of grace, the grace of Christ, you're not aware of how God begins to work in your heart and to make a change in you that will cause you to choose Christ. The Holy Spirit works without your perception. And that's described in a beautiful metaphor when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus himself spoke these words about how a person is moved by the Holy Spirit to come to Christ, to come to him. He said in John 3 verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now in this, wind is... The analogy, it's the analogy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus used a play on words here because the word wind in Greek is the same as spirit. And he said the wind blows where it wants. You can't see it. You can't control it. All that you can ever see is the effect of the wind. And Jesus used that to compare to the Holy Spirit, how he works in the human heart, that he comes when he wants, that he does what he wants, and he secures what he wants from you, and then when he's through with you, the only way that you know that he's been there is by the effect that he has produced. Oh, just like you can't see the wind and you can't control it, you only see the wind by the effects of it, the rustling of the leaves and the trees. It's the same way when the Holy Spirit comes to work in the human heart. You don't know that he's there, you don't know that he's been there, except for what happens next, for the effect of the Holy Spirit when he works in you. And you need to be grateful that the Holy Spirit works this way. And I realize that there are many people that don't like it. And they don't like you to talk about it. And they want to insist on this, that God is not going to do anything to interfere with your will. But I want to tell you this. If the Holy Spirit did not interfere with your will, if he did not work in you imperceptibly, you would always resist him. You would always turn him down. You would always refuse what he wants you to do. You would always turn your back on him. And that's because your heart is bound in sin. And you cannot break that hold of sin on your heart. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does. He breaks that hold of sin. He, he works in you to respond to the gospel of Christ. And you don't know why you want to do it. You just know that you do want to do it. And you do it because that is the effect of the wind. That's the effect of the Holy Spirit as he works through the gospel of Christ. And so we'll leave that theology, we'll leave that part alone for just a while. And now let's talk about what this sinner must do to be saved. Now that's God's work we've just talked about. What God is doing imperceptibly, working in the human heart to bring the person to salvation. But now, what do you do? What is your part in this? Where do you come into the picture? How are you going to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, the first requirement is repentance. And repentance is about the conviction of sin. And I know this is old hat for most of you. You are familiar with this, and you might think, well, now it's time to tune out. But I don't want you to tune out, because I need you to understand that most evangelism is done wrongly that people do not understand what the Bible really means by repentance. And when the gospel falls short here, and if you don't get this right, the unconverted remain unconverted. And even though an exuberant soul winner might think that he's got another one, and he gleefully marks the name down on the report, the sad part is the lost sinner is still lost. And then he's given false assurance that he's saved. Now, I want you to notice this, that repentance is necessary according to the message of Christ in his public ministry. Mark chapter 1, Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. John the Baptist also preached that message of repentance. The apostles preached it. 
The apostles insisted upon it as they carried the gospel throughout the world. Paul, who was the greatest missionary of all time, said, I have withheld nothing from you of the message of Christ. He said this, How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying unto both the Jews and also to the Gentiles, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you must repent. When Paul preached at Athens in in, uh, Acts chapter 17, he said, God commands everyone everywhere to repent. And that was strong language. People must repent. Salvation is dependent upon it, and it must be preached. But what is it? What does it mean to repent? And here's the rub with bad presentations of the gospel. And that is, there is no demand for real repentance. What is it that God expects to hear from a sinner who wants to be saved? Well, at the basic core, repentance means a change of mind. When Judas betrayed Jesus, the Bible says that he repented, and he went back and he took the blood money that he had taken, and he gave it back, and it says that Judas repented, or Judas changed his mind. But that kind of repentance is not the same as we're talking about here. That is not the kind of repentance that God requires in salvation. Judas repented. He changed his mind because he feared punishment because of what he'd done. Judas' repentance is called a legal repentance. And that was because he was concerned with the remorse of his conscience. But his repentance, his change of his mind, did nothing at all to change his basic character. But the repentance of the gospel is a different type of repentance. It's not legal repentance. It's what we call evangelical repentance. And it's not done because of fear of punishment. It goes much deeper than that. It goes to the cause. It is a conviction that our sins have offended the holiness of God. And this is the kind of conviction when you see yourself as you really are, that you are rebellious. You see yourself in the rebellion of sin. That's conviction. And before a person is saved, he doesn't really understand who he is. He can't understand who he is. He doesn't know that he's offended God. He doesn't know that sin is the real problem in his life. And he doesn't recognize that because his mind is alienated from God. He doesn't know anything about God. And his condition is so desperate, he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't try to do anything about it because the truth of who he is in God's eyes and the responsibility that he has towards God has been depressed. It's depressed because of a sinful nature in him, that sinful condition of what he is. He suppresses God's truth. But then when the Holy Spirit comes, that necessary work to the Holy Spirit, he comes and he regenerates the heart, and he opens up the mind, and releases the mind that's been hardened and deadened by sin, so that it understands the true condition of what that person is. It opens up the mind to the sense of God's truth. And so this person is awakened to his condition and he sees that his life is meaningless. He sees that all is futile, that everything is wrong about him, that everything that he thought was good was bad. He finds out it's all bad and he finds out that he's not good enough, that nothing that he's done has been good enough. He can never meet God's demands. And so in essence, he changes his mind about who he is. And he changes his mind about who God is. And he changes his mind about what God requires of him. And he sees himself as a sinner that deserves death and that God is perfectly righteous to require it of him if he doesn't stop where he is and turn around and call on the name of the Lord. And so what he desires to do is to stop. He wants to end his rebellion. He wants to stop that downward spiral away from God. And he wants to be made right. And he understands that he truly does deserve all the effects that sin has in his life, the legal the impediments that are against him. He understands all of that. He sees all of sin's effects, and he wants to have all of it removed. So he wants to be rid of it. In every area of his life, he wants to be rid of it. He's sorry for his sin. He wants God to know that he's sorry for sin. And in that comprehension of his guilt, he has genuine sorrow and shame that causes him to loathe himself. Now that's far distant from the way that repentance is preached in the gospel today. That repentance is very lightly touched in gospel presentation. 
Repentance that recognizes the sinful condition of the heart and demands a change with evidence of that change is not the thing that's preached. It's not touched. Repentance means to confess that everything that God says about you is true, that you acknowledge your personal sin and you understand what you are, that you are deserving of hell. What is repentance? It is the conviction of sin. It's turning away from sin. And it's real. Repentance is real when sin has been forsaken and when a person has a desire to live a life of obedience to God. Now that's the aspect of repentance that's woefully missing in gospel presentations. Many times no one is told what sin really is, what the personal condition really is. Many times there's a gospel of self-esteem that's preached, so there's no sin that's mentioned at all. No sinners are turned, no evidence is given. And that's because the person has not been truly saved. So what must you do to be saved? You must repent. You've got to turn from your sins and realize that you are no good. Turn from any idea that you can satisfy God by what you can do. Turn from sin and turn in submission to the Almighty God. And if you won't do that, if you don't do all of that, if you hold anything back from God, then you will not be saved. Well, a person is truly saved, when he is truly saved, we find that repentance is a way of life. That every time that he sins... In his life, he wants to turn away from it. He desires a relationship with Jesus Christ as his Lord, and he desires that and shows that by turning away from sin. True salvation is never going to leave a person just like they were. Now, I have to ask you, if you possess, profess salvation, is that what you were told about repentance? Is that how the gospel came to you? Have you actually repented? Do you have a desire to turn away from your sin, or are you still okay with it? Are you still living in it? Does sin have a safe haven in your life so that you can go on day after day just doing the things that you did, living the way that you lived, doing the same sins that you always lived in? Can you do that? Well, if you can, then you, and you excuse yourself for what you do. If you have no conviction and desire to turn from sin, I'm sorry, you're not saved. According to the Scriptures, you're not saved. You, you received a presentation of the gospel that was faulty, or your reception of it was faulty, and you stayed in sin because your heart was never changed. And so all you're doing is going through the motions of serving Christ. Well, secondly, what must you do? You must believe. Believe is about the confession of Christ. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So you must repent of your sins and believe the gospel. That's faith. Believing is faith. Here's a great definition of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so we can say that faith is confidence, that faith is assurance that what you hope for is real. Faith is trust. Faith is reliance in a personal way that all that you've heard about Jesus Christ and the Word of God is true. It's to believe that sins really are forgiven in Christ, that Christ died, that His death was to take care of sin's penalty for you. Faith is the mental assent to the facts of the gospel, but then it moves on beyond the mental assent, beyond the intellectual assent to the appropriation of those facts of what Christ has done, and it moves into personal commitment to Him. It's also the understanding that faith itself has no merit. That just to say, I have faith, means nothing at all. The importance of faith is not faith. The importance of faith is the object of faith, and that faith must be in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. He is the only one who can save you. And so faith in Christ is the renouncing, the giving up of all other ways that you would attempt to be saved. Saving faith is forsaking all confidence in anything but Christ. God commands repentance and he commands faith in Jesus. 1 John 3.23, and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. We must believe on Christ and only on Christ. And that's where the world falls by the wayside. 
other religions are shed away right here in that statement. Real faith is in Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven, and that means to the exclusion of all other ways. And I can't emphasize that enough today that anyone who holds an opinion that Jesus is a way to heaven, that he's one of the ways that you can get to heaven, does not have saving faith. And so, you know what faith includes or what it declares? It's an, it's an exoneration of God's character. That God was right to condemn, that God was right to judge sin, that God was right to demand the payment, and God was right when he also showed his greatest act of love by providing a way out of your miserable condition. Faith in Jesus Christ, confession of him as Lord and Savior, that is the way. It's the only way of salvation. Well, now we need to conclude the study. What is the gospel of the commission? It's the recognition of your sinful condition. It's the recognition of God's expectation. It's the understanding that Christ came as a substitute for our sin, and it is the response of repentance and faith. But are we done? Is the gospel anything else than this? Well, yes, it is. And you have to have the last part, too, or you're not truly saved. What is the gospel? And so we say, fifthly, that it is the willing submission of servants. Now, I want you to notice verse number 20. This is the last verse of the gospel account. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now we're ready to abandon all false professions of Christ. This is where we separate real faith from artificial faith. This is where real repentance is separated from half-hearted resignation to sin. Oh, there has to be something concrete about salvation so that it doesn't exist as just the product of wishful thinking. True salvation, true faith in Christ is always demonstrated. In fact, we can go as far to say that saving faith contains the element of volitional surrender. That saving faith recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard to imagine that we would ever face a battle on this front, but we actually do. That we face a battle here about whether salvation includes actually surrendering to Christ as Lord of your life. Many Baptist people reject the historical definition of saving faith. Now, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 10, if you would. And this is a passage that should be familiar to any of you that has ever given a gospel presentation to someone. And even if you haven't, you are familiar with this. If you're saved, you've heard it, you know this. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul gives us an explanation of what we need to do to be saved. And so he says in Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse number 6, but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now would you notice there in verse number 9, it says, You will be saved if you confess the Lord Jesus. And then if you look down at verse number 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, and you might want to underline that, the name of the Lord, underline Lord, shall be saved. Now what we have here is a text that's often used to promote the sinner's prayer. Now most of us are familiar with that. It's found in the back of evangelistic tracts. You read it on church websites. You hear it at invitation time at the end of sermons. But strangely enough, you never see it in the Bible. There is not one instance of the sinner's prayer in any conversion in Scripture. There is no example of Jesus using it. 
There is no example of any apostle that used it. There is no instruction for it in any of the epistles. There is no example of any church ever using it or any preacher ever using it in the history of the church until modern times. And yet, without the sinner's prayer, most soul winners would be bum-fuzzled. They don't know what to do if they can't get somebody to pray their prayer. And I see this all the time with missionaries, that they write about how many people said the sinner's prayer, and yet the sinner's prayer is without any biblical foundation. Now, one of the dangers of, of the sinner's prayer is the warning that I've given you throughout this message, that the sinner's prayer is a light brush that is applied to repentance and faith. Do you think that it's possible for people to understand all that I've said today in three minutes? Uh, if you've listened to the message, you know that repentance is deep. You know that repentance is severe. This is not something that we get at in two minutes and then leave another minute for the explanation of faith. Now, faith is also likewise serious because faith is the result of a great turnaround in a person's life. Where there is no deep repentance, there is no real faith. Now, in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is here. He's not arguing for casual admittance to facts. You can't read Romans' deep theological arguments and imagine for even a moment that Paul would come down to Romans chapter 10 and believe that he would reduce everything that he said to five minutes of explanation and declare someone who had been saved who prayed a sinner's prayer. You'd never hear him pull a Joel Osteen and say, well, if you said that prayer, we believe you got born again. He's not going to say that. He's not going to fill out a soul-rending report and put a check mark next to a name because a person said the sinner's prayer. He got three minutes of explanation and now he said a sinner's prayer. No, it's evident that what Paul is arguing here for is evidence of person's faith. He's arguing for lordship salvation. He's arguing that salvation is produced or produces a commitment and a demonstration that faith is real, that faith has received the lordship of Christ. Now, salvation is following Christ in total surrender. It's to do all that Christ commands. It's never presented in any other way. Now, we see the cohesiveness of Scripture on this point when James follows upon Paul and says that faith without works is dead. A faith that will not work is dead. And so our conclusion is that saving faith is not saving unless it contains the element of submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so saving faith is more than just saying that you have believed, going up and telling a congregation that you have believed. Saving faith is more than a quick trip into the baptistry. Saving faith is more than having your name put on the church roll. But that's the very place that many people find their assurance. They look back to the fact that they've said a prayer. One time they said a prayer. One time they walked a church aisle. One time the, pa the pastor put them under the water. One time somebody recorded their name on a church roll, and that's where they find their assurance. But the Bible says you never find your assurance in those things. Here's what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not? Your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. He tells us to prove ourselves in the faith. How do you do that? How do you prove that you're actually in the faith? What do you examine? He says, examine yourselves. Well, what do you examine? Oh, well, we go back and we examine our decision card. We signed our name to the decision card. That's what we examine. We examine the family record in the Bible. In, in the middle of our Bible, it's got the family record there. We go back and watch the video again. We were baptized. Watch the video again. That's our assurance. Is that what you do? Where do you find the assurance of your salvation? Where do you know that faith is real? You look at your life. What did it produce in you? Now the hurry up and get saved crowd says, you don't need to worry about that. You said a prayer, so everything's fine. And so if you don't live it, you're just a carnal Christian. You're just a carnal Christian. Where do you find that in the Bible? Do you see the terrible consequences if you're not right about this? Paul said, you are reprobates. That means rejected by God. That means you're counterfeit Christians. And so what I need to tell you what that means, it means lost. It means on the way to hell. Nothing is real about your confession. So this is very serious. You know, I never want to be the preacher that pushes the sinner's prayer on people just to get decisions. And then to find out later that they're still reprobates. Oh, the apostles 
approach to this is serious self-examination. To examine submission, to follow Christ. And if you don't see any of that in your life, if you don't see a faith that produces something in your life, it produces no change, then what you need to do is get back down on your knees and plead for the mercy and the grace of God. Now here's why we say that there aren't any carnal Christians. Carnal Christianity is a myth that has been produced by deficient soul winning. There's no carnal Christians because there is no true Christian that can perpetually live in sin. That's what carnality is. Sometimes Christians act carnally. Sometimes they sin. Of course they do. They cannot live in sin as a way of life. The Bible says you cannot do it because God has saved you. Christ has saved you from your sins. And if you're not saved from a life of sin, then how did Christ actually actually remedy your sinful condition? Isn't that the very problem that we discussed in point number one of the outline? It's the sinful condition of man. That's what we're trying to get rid of. That's the thing we're trying to rectify. And so how are we going to say, well, we're saved, but we still live in sin. We're still doing the same things we did before. No, you've got to be changed from that sinful life. That's how you know that your faith was real. 1 John 3, 5, And ye know that he was manifested, Christ was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. In the eighth verse, he that committed sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so if you're still living in sin, you're not saved. I don't care who your dad is. I don't care who your mom is. I don't care how many years that you've had your name on the church roll. What am I trying to do? Am I trying to ruin your assurance of your salvation? I'm not trying to ruin your assurance. I'm trying to tell you to find it. Find out about it, because the only way that you can know that you're saved, the only way that counts, is guaranteed by your submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, the sinner's prayer will not change you. The baptistry will not change you. Church membership will not change you. Receiving Christ as your Lord is the only thing that will change you, because that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord recognizing who he is, call upon the name of the Lord, whoever does that will be saved. So call on the one who rules, submit to his authority, and he will give you eternal life. Do you need to pray a prayer? Do you need to ask God to do that? Certainly you do. Certainly you do. But you're not going to do it with a three-point presentation. You're not going to do it with three minutes of preparation and not really understanding what repentance and faith are. And so we bring it all down to this. The last verses in Matthew are a command to make disciples. It's to make converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel makes them realize that they are helpless sinners, that they are on their way to hell, that they are in need of the grace of God. And it tells them that only Jesus can save them, that there is no other way, that they must turn from all of their sins, they must trust Christ as the one who died in their place, and that his sacrifice satisfied God. And it tells them that they can be saved if they call on Him as Lord, if they come in full surrender to His control over their lives. And there is no other salvation but this. You don't find any other salvation than this. There is no salvation that Christ offers other than this. And this is what we are commanded to preach. And thus we have the triumphant ending of Matthew Christ came to bring sinners to him. He wants subjects in his kingdom. He lived his life. He gave up his life. And then he took it again so that one day we could see God face to face. That's the history of it. That is his story. It's the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, the gospel of Christ is reason to celebrate. Come to Christ, repent of your sins, and believe the gospel. It is the gospel by which you are saved. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now admitting that we are sinners. Lord, recognizing that there is nothing that we can do that would ever enable us to be in heaven, that grants us any right to be there, that we are all unrighteous, that there is nothing good in us whatsoever. Lord, we come bowing before you, confessing our sinfulness, laying it all upon you and saying, God, help me. God, change me. God, God, make a difference in my life. Lord, we come to you 
and repentance and faith and say we want you to rule over us. We want you to take us into that glory of heaven where there is no sin, where we live without it. And Lord, help us to surrender fully and completely to your control over our lives. I pray that you'd speak to some sinner's heart today, that you'd help them to understand this, what they must do to come in repentance and faith, receiving you as Lord. And then I pray for anyone here in our congregation who says that they're a Christian, but they can look at their lives and they see that they're just faking it, that they're just trying to live like Christians and show somebody else and that they are Christians, but they know that in their own heart they have struggles with sin, they're fighting sin all the time, they don't want to give it up, they live in it all the time, they've never truly repented of sin, they've never really come in faith to you. Lord, help them to see that if there is no change that's been made over all this time that they confess to be Christians, that they're not really saved. Lord, there are so many people in the world that have been sold a false bill of goods. They've been told that they were saved because they did a simple thing, an easy thing, easy believism, just believe a simple little thing. And so now that they are saved and they're guaranteed assurance of it by what a preacher said. Lord, may it not be what a preacher says. May it be what Christ has done in the heart. May it be a change that makes us something different. Lord, I pray for everyone here in this room today. I just pray that repentance is real, faith is real, the lordship of Jesus Christ is real in their hearts. Draw them with the Holy Spirit to you. Save their souls. Cause them to call upon you in a deeply contrite heart, confessing sin and believing in Jesus Christ. Help us today, Lord. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't want you to go away today confusing an excited tone to be an angry tone. I, I don't want to portray any anger in the way that I present the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to know how deep the love of God is that he was willing to conquer sin in our lives, that he loved us so much that he was not willing to leave us the way that we were. He, he loved us enough that he died to take us to heaven. And he knows that he can't take us to heaven unless he's dealt with sin in our lives, unless he's conquered that sin. I don't do anybody any favors by giving you false hope that says, well, you can be saved and yet you can just do whatever you want to do and live the way that you want to live. We believe that salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. But that faith produces something in us. And we have to look for that evidence. And if it's not there, then we need to beg for that mercy and grace of God. Change us. Make us something different because we can't get to heaven without that. And that's how great the love of God is. It is great enough that it takes the worst vile sinner, all of us, and that's what we are, worst vile sinners that we can be, the worst sins that we've ever committed, and washes them completely clean, takes them all away from us. That's the love of God, that he was willing to give his own son to do that. So how can we say that if he gave his own son to do that, to do away with sin in our lives, that it's okay just to go on living in it? He'll never accept that. And so if that's where you find yourself, then you need to ask God to save you. Truly repent. Have your faith in Christ. Know that he's the only one that can save you. I invite you to do that today. We're going to sing another verse of our song. Uh, we would love to... Have you come and talk to us about knowing Christ, knowing Him better even. You can come here this morning. We have people in the back who are willing to talk to you. I'm willing to talk to you. We just want people to be saved. We want people to be saved. We want people to go to heaven. And that's why we're left here at the end of Matthew with the gospel of Christ. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make subjects of the kingdom. And that's what we want you to be. Subject to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org